Hey guys, this is Drake. Thanks so much for tuning in to our City Church podcast here. It's an honor to have you. Hey, at the end of this episode, we'd love for you to take a moment, subscribe to this podcast channel if you haven't already. Also subscribe to our YouTube channel so we can continue to serve you with content that we're putting out on a weekly basis. And in addition, if we can serve you in any way or connect with you in community in any way, you can visit our website at citychurchboulder.com and we would love to connect with you there. And lastly, and most importantly, I hope this content is helpful to you. It's encouraging, it's inspiring, and you leave better than you showed up. Enjoy. All right, so to introduce myself, I'm literally just the guy who's giving this sermon. <laughs> so uh, I'm actually a PhD student at CU Boulder studying environmental engineering, but more importantly for today, I'm the last member of the teaching cohort you're gonna be hearing from this summer, right? right? And so you've already gotten to hear some amazing sermons from Billy, Fitz, uh, Isaac, and Maddie, who absolutely crushed it. Let's give them another round of applause. Right. I've been coming to uh, City Church for about a year now, and what an amazing year it's been. In that time, I've gotten to meet a lot of my closest friends. It's a little bit of feedback, right? Okay, okay, yeah, <laughs> what an amazing year it's been. In the, in the last year, I've gotten to meet a lot of my closest friends, people that I could call at 3 a.m. and who I know would be there in a pinch. I hope you'll find the same thing here, that church is not just something that we do on Sunday mornings. It's something that we get to be Monday through Saturday as well. Okay, in the last year, I've also uh, gotten engaged to and married my best friend, Nayang. That's my wife. Right. Um, and I, I couldn't give this uh, message without acknowledging um, when we were preparing to get married, as we were as busy as we've ever been, Nay was about to graduate. Um, I, could, I asked Nay if I could do this teaching cohort, right? Um, and you haven't gotten to see all of the back end of work, uh, which went in with Drake to each of these messages, um, but it was actually a lot of work spread out across several months. Um, and so really, I just would not be able to give this message if it wasn't for her support during that insane time. Um, so just another shout out. <laughs> right. Okay, so. There's one thing that I, I need to acknowledge before I actually um, start the message today. A lot of the people who uh, heard this sermon previously were actually really surprised by how serious the tone of it was. Uh, and I think what I realized is that most of you who know me, you probably know me as, as this will, right? Which we can call, which we can call City Kids Will. Um, a lot of you who know me, you may know me as, as this will. Uh, which we can call kind of goofy climber will. Um, some of you who know me, you might know me as, as this will, which is, that's just me, you know? <laughs> but you might not realize that I actually can be uh, quite serious and that I do have a side which is more academic. Um, so I don't want you to be taken aback by that. Um, just preparing you a little bit. <laughs> You know, my hope really is that this uh, sermon will engage you at the intellectual level as well as at the emotional level because I believe that God cares about our minds as well as our hearts. But trust me, I am still this will. <laughs> right, so 
today we're going to be reading through the last chapter of Nehemiah. It's the conclusion of the series that we've been in for a couple of months. And spoiler alert, it's actually a little bit of a downer. All right, but I hope that by the end of this message, you will see how this passage gives us a new vision of who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how that transforms our hope today. Who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how that transforms our hope today. But first, before I introduce the passage we're covering today, I'd first like to introduce you to a psychological phenomenon. It's known as semantic satiation. Now, I know that there are a couple of you who just woke up. Um, <laughs> please feel free to grab more coffee if you need it. Uh, but bear with me. So um, semantic satiation is a phenomenon in which if you hear a word repeated enough times, it gradually begins to lose its meaning, right? So many of you have likely experienced semantic satiation before. And um, if I keep going for much longer, you might begin to experience semantic satiation right now. So instead, uh, I'm actually going to let Ted Lasso demonstrate my point for me. I'm not playing on that. No, my plan is my plan to work. But you know what they say about the best laid plans, right? But, hmm, I said plan too many times. Words lost all its meaning now. Plan. 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 <laughs> right, so I am going to suggest to you that in the church and in the broader society, we are experiencing something like semantic satiation when it comes to words that are actually central to the Christian faith. Words like resurrection and repentance and salvation. Words that we've heard so many times that perhaps we're not even sure what they, means anymore, they mean anymore. On a more personal level, the meaning that these words do carry for us is often tainted by people shouting on street corners with signs. The associations that these experiences form is powerful, and we can be left feeling uncomfortable even hearing these words, let alone using them. This leaves us with a problem, however. If we, as the church, are to be disciples, that is to say, apprentices of Jesus, we cannot simply ignore these strange words, because they were central to the way that he thought and communicated. We must put in the work of recovering the meaning that they carried for Jesus and his first century, mostly Jewish audience. There's one phrase in particular that Jesus used all the time, which was central to the way that he saw himself and his mission on earth. This phrase, this idea, was so important to Jesus that his very last teachings to his disciples were about it. I'd like to play a game with you here really quickly. After he had been resurrected from the dead, Acts 1-3 tells us that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about something. What do you think it is that Jesus spoke to his disciples about? He had these 40 days with his closest friends and companions. If you were Jesus, what would you talk about? What would you leave them with? It's probably something important, right? These were the disciples who would continue Jesus' mission. What did they need to know about? How did he prepare them? He spoke to them 
about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, was so important to Jesus that he told his disciples to pray for it. Well before I'd ever opened the New Testament, I was familiar with this prayer, and likely so are most of you. You've probably heard it something like, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. That is to say, God, let your kingdom come soon. If you are a follower of Jesus in the room, then he has actually made it your duty to pray for and to will the coming of his kingdom. But this is kind of hard to do if we don't even understand what the kingdom of God is. If you do feel that you have an understanding of what the kingdom of God is, I would challenge you to answer to yourself, why is it that Jesus sometimes talks about the kingdom as if it's something that's arrived with him, and why he sometimes talks about it as if it's something which is coming in the future? How could the kingdom simultaneously be here and not yet here? Already and not yet. How is it that the Apostle Paul, while speaking to Jesus' followers, can say that God has brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves, while so much suffering has happened even in the last few years? If it's true that we are already in the kingdom of God, how can there still be so much injustice in the world? I promise you, friends, it's not because Paul was ignorant about suffering. This man was homeless. He was beaten. People tried to kill him. And eventually, people did kill him. How could he still believe that he had already been brought into the kingdom of God? Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, if you're interested in understanding who Jesus is and what he promised for his followers, it will be more than worth your time to understand what he meant when he spoke of the kingdom of God. So then, let's not beat around the bush. What is the kingdom of God? One definition is provided within the Lord's Prayer itself. Let thy kingdom come, let thy will be done. Wherever God's will is done, wherever his loving rule and reign extends, there is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus himself perfectly demonstrates what this kingdom of self-giving love looks like. While this definition is true, it doesn't get us all the way there. You see, just as we read Jesus' words in a historical, cultural context, so did Jesus's immediate audience. We read these verses about kings and kingdoms within the context of 21st century Boulder, Colorado. For the same reason, we must try to understand the mindset of Jesus's audience if we were to get a fuller picture of what the kingdom of God would have meant to them. For Jesus's Jewish audience, they would have interpreted his words within the context of the Tanakh, what you and I call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Jesus himself was soaked in these scriptures from the time that he was a child, and likely so was much of his audience. 
You see, many Old Testament prophets point forward to a time when God would restore the kingdom of Israel through a great leader, both by freeing them from external oppression and by leading them into internal righteousness. This leader, or Messiah, was supposed to... uh, was supposed to defeat the enemies that enslaved them and lead them back into faithful relationship with their God. The prophet Micah gives us a picture of God using this leader of a restored Israel to bring healing to all the earth. He wrote about this leader that after a time of trials and persecution, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So this renewed kingdom will be built and grounded in the strength of the Lord. It will be secure from foreign oppression, and through it, the whole world will be blessed. From a historical perspective, we know that this time of persecution really did come to pass. About 150 years after Micah gave this prophecy, the Babylonian Empire destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took many Judeans, these are people from the southern kingdom of Israel, into captivity. They were utterly decimated. The people of Judah saw this subjugation as a product of their broken relationship with God. They saw the downfall of the people of Israel the exile of God's chosen people as being a result of their broken relationship. And so the renewal of their kingdom could only come through the forgiveness of God. Incredibly, after 70 years, the Babylonian empire was defeated and the people of Judah were released from their captivity. The Persian king, Cyrus the Great, who conquered Babylon, tells the people of Judah to go and rebuild their kingdom. We've been walking through the book of Nehemiah together for the past couple of months, uh, which along with the book of Ezra describes this process of rebuilding. Last week, Fitz Fitz preached about this incredible celebration which happens in chapter 12. And at first glance, it seems that the kingdom has truly been restored. The temple is rebuilt, the people are observing the Torah, and the walls of Jerusalem provide them security from foreign oppression. They seal a covenant which declares that they will be faithful to the Torah and forever attend to the temple of God. This moment, the restoration of the kingdom is something that generations of Judeans have dreamed of and labored for, making the joy of the people that much sweeter. Well, do you remember how I said that the last chapter of Nehemiah was a bit of a downer? In Nehemiah 13, we find that Nehemiah has gone back into the service of King Artaxerxes, who uh, originally allowed him to depart for Jerusalem to oversee this rebuilding project. Nehemiah once again asked for permission from King Artaxerxes to depart for Jerusalem. And when he arrives there, he finds that all of their work is being undermined and undone. Nehemiah finds that not only are the people neglecting the temple, that one of the people who tried to undermine the rebuilding project is actually living in one of the temple storerooms. He writes, I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together 
and set them in their stations. Additionally, he finds people have abandoned their promise to follow the Torah. People are no longer keeping the Sabbath, which was central to the way that Ezra had instructed them. In verses 17 and 18, he tells us, Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Okay, so big deal, right? Right? Like, what, like why does this seem like such a big deal? You know, people are ignoring the temple and ignoring uh, the Torah. So why is this such a catastrophe? Well, there are obvious implications within the context of the story in placing this chapter right after chapter 12, the joyful celebration which Fitz preached about. It was just two chapters before this where they had vowed to forever keep the Sabbath and to look after the temple. I think the implication that the book of Nehemiah is pointing us towards is that the kingdom had not arrived. Not yet. You see, Nehemiah becomes almost deranged in the way that he responds to the people. He is actually so angered that he begins confronting them and cursing them and beating them. He actually pulls the hair out of some of their heads. You can almost hear the defeat in his voice when he speaks the last words of this book. He says, remember me, oh my God, for good. When I hear this, I hear, remember me, oh my God, because I tried to stand against the rising tide. What I hear is, remember me, oh my God, because I tried and I failed. Perhaps even more telling is the state of Jerusalem at the end of this book. While they have physically rebuilt the city, Nehemiah is clear that it has not truly been restored. Even though they are no longer held in captivity in Babylon, they are still ruled over by foreign powers. Nehemiah 9.36 records the sentiment that we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. Although the temple has physically been rebuilt, it too has not truly been restored. The first temple was filled with the glory of the Lord. The temple was supposed to be God's presence amongst his people. However, there is no mention that the glory of the Lord has returned to fill the second temple. And the people who are old enough to be alive to see the original temple actually wept with sorrow when they saw the second one completed. Judah's covenant relationship with their God has not been restored. All of this points to a single conclusion. God has not restored the kingdom. The exile is not really over. You see, Judah's rebuilding project had the same fatal flaw as every exercise plan that I have ever tried. You see, the problem is not with the plan, the problem is with me, and the problem was with them. No matter the vows that they made, no matter how many times a leader like Ezra or Nehemiah rose up to set things straight, they were constitutionally incapable of achieving the internal righteousness which was supposed to define the kingdom of God. 
their primary need was not actually fulfilled, the thing that they needed for any of this to make a difference in the long run. Their primary need, friends, was for a new heart. This picture is much the same as the one that Jesus walks into 450 years later. The city of Jerusalem is still ruled over by foreign powers, and the people are still waiting for God to restore the kingdom. It was this context which Jesus was speaking into, in this context in which his teaching about the kingdom of God was absolutely explosive. He redefines and upends what, pe what people think the kingdom of God is. He says in Luke 17, 20, and 21, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will pe people say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom is in the midst of you. Jesus came to fulfill all of the hopes of the people of Israel, but in a way which was radically different from what they expected. They expected a great leader who would set them free from foreign oppression through great military power. But instead, he arrived saying things like, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Instead of overthrowing the oppressive Roman rule, he was overcome by it. The night before he died, he prayed to his father, asking if it was possible, if there was any other way that he be spared from the fate that waited for him. But then he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Friends, this is the kingdom. And here is your king. Even when facing torture and death, he says, Father, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And because of that, we get to look at him on the cross, dying for our sins and say, Jesus, not as I will, but as you will. Friends, this is the vision that I want you to see of who Jesus is perfect king. Can you see it? He's the rightful king of the universe, but he's born in a stable, and he comes riding on a donkey to die a death that is deemed fit only for a criminal. Though not even his disciples were faithful to him in his last moments, though all of humanity turned its back on him, he was faithful to his father and to us until the very end because this is what he came to do, to restore his kingdom. Jesus teaches us that everyone who, who sins is a slave to sin. Jesus was not just a great teacher or a leader because the people of Israel had already had great leaders like Nehemiah, who no matter how hard they tried, ultimately failed to lead them into faithfulness. Jesus doesn't just teach us to be faithful, he supplies the faithfulness. He goes in our place as a representative and pays the price for our sins to set us free and reconcile us to God. And this is the hope that we now have, that on the third day after he'd been laid into the ground, Jesus rose from the dead. 
like the sound of a great trumpet which announces that a king has arrived at the city, city gates, his resurrection announces to all who hear, hear about it that the kingdom is here. Friends, through our faith, we carry the kingdom with us wherever we go. The kingdom is in the midst of you. As I close us out, I'd like to invite Kari. Sorry, that's Daniel on stage with me. <laughs> Rather than rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, Jesus came to initiate a new sort of rebuilding project. He came to rebuild the human heart. He came to rebuild our lives, yours and mine. In Matthew 4.17, Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I know that this is another difficult word, but I think C.S. Lewis put it well when he said, Repentance is not something that God demands of you before he will take you back, and which he could let you off of if he chose. It is simply a description of what going back is like. It just means going back, friends. I think Jesus is saying, the kingdom of heaven has arrived. It is here in this room with you. It is pursuing you. So come back to me today. When we receive Jesus, we are welcomed into the kingdom of God. When we receive him, we receive the kingdom because he is the king. Things do not become easy after that. Following Jesus does not get rid of all of the pain that we experience in this life. Obedience does not make things easier. It certainly didn't for Jesus. The world is still a broken and a hurting place. But we look forward to the day when Jesus will return to set this world straight. The day when God will be king over all of the earth. The day when he will blot out injustice and wipe the tear from every eye. Friends, the kingdom is coming. But when we let Jesus rebuild our lives, when we hand over the reins, the kingdom has already arrived. What is an area of control that you can hand over to Jesus? It does not have to be huge, but honestly, friends, it should scare you because giving up control is always scary. When I was preparing for this sermon, I was burning the candle at both ends. I had a hard time embracing my limits because I couldn't help to feel that it was all up to me, that everything was up to me. Rather than prioritizing the cycles of rest and work and community, which are conducive to being with God, I let my pride lead me to believe that I had to perform for God. It is difficult for me to let God be king over the way that I spend my time. Perhaps you need to let Jesus be king over your workplace, your ambitions, over your family life, your finances, habits, relationships. Maybe there is a phone call that you can make. 
or an apology that is long overdue. Perhaps your, perhaps your next step of obedience is just to admit that you are desperately in need of help, that you feel like your head is going underwater, but you cannot seem to admit to anyone that you're drowning. Friends, start by telling Jesus, but please reach out to somebody here too. Vulnerability is difficult, but it is also a first step towards true relationships and community. Maybe you've never decided to follow Jesus at all. Just know that it is a momentary decision to receive the kingdom and a lifelong process to let the king sort out your life. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are loved, safe, and welcome here. And we are happy to walk with you. Before I close this in prayer, I'd like to give you a few moments to reflect on your next steps. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thank you.